0: Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 332, Athelred, the Yoms Vikings. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts, and you can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at the Podcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Oscar, Ian, and Chris for signing up already. So here we are with two full companies of Yom's vikings laying waste to southern England and in response the nobility the people who were literally tasked with defending the population and the kingdom had decided that this was an excellent chance to fight amongst themselves as well as do a bit of pirating and also arrange a political marriage because who doesn't love a wedding. And as if they weren't busy enough, at the same time, King Athelred was also seizing Wulfnoth Child's lands for himself, because of course he was. But as for the defense of the kingdom, well, they decided to leave that up to God, because they were busy. But just to make sure that the big guy got the message, they did mandate that everyone get together and shout, hey, fella, can you do us a solid and get rid of these Danes? And to be honest, as far as Athelred's recent defensive strategies went, it actually wasn't the worst one. The advantage of a prayer offensive is that it doesn't require an army. And that means that it doesn't disrupt the harvest, nor does it lead to large companies of Englishmen foraging around their own lands. Furthermore, it doesn't result in a fleet of rogue English warships pirating English coasts. And all of those things have been the result of Athelred and his court's previous strategies so thanks to one hell of a grading curve this was probably one of athelred's better plans but there's just one small problem with it it turned out that even if god was listening the yams vikings weren't because they continued raiding and pillaging without a second thought and now they even had some nice commemorative prayer coins to remember it all by then once they'd had their fill of kent which was shortly after easter They moved on to East Anglia, and they knew exactly where they wanted to go. You see, this region had hosted a seasonal market along the coastline for centuries. Every year for several months, merchants and craftsmen would come at the appointed time, and they'd trade their goods before leaving for home or for other market sites. And the interest in this seaside market was so significant that soon permanent structures were erected. And eventually, people relocated their businesses so they could operate there full time. Then, other supporting professions, as well as just individuals looking to capitalize on the growth of the market town, began to move in. And before long, the nobility took an interest, and they began to regulate the market so they could better take advantage of the wealth that was flowing through the harbor. Walls were erected, guards were stationed to regulate what came in and came out. It was fully developing, and meanwhile, the boom continued and even more people relocated to the town. Then, when the Danes occupied East Anglia, this town gained access to even more trade routes thanks to the vast Scandinavian trade networks. And it continued to grow. And that's how a little seasonal trading site became the wealthy city of Ipswich. And that was precisely where the Yoms Vikings were headed. Few places would hold as much loot as a successful market town. And their arrival must have come as a surprise, because we're told, rather matter-of-factly, that the Yoms Vikings stormed and plundered the city. Now, we're not told how they arrived, but given their quick success, my suspicion is they took their longships up the River Orwell and struck Ipswich before the locals even knew what was happening. But just because Ipswich was lost didn't mean that East Anglia was without hope. Ulfgill Snelling, the mighty noble who had led the East Anglian Ferd against King Swain Forkbeard of Denmark, was still very much alive. As Ipswich burned, Ulfgill was far inland, near Thetford, and he was hastily arranging the East Anglian forces along with anyone else who would answer his call. The Ferd of Cambridgeshire had arrived, and some of the East Anglian Ferdsmen were slowly making their way to the area, as were the nobles who led them. Among their number was a member of the extended royal dynasty, a man named Athelstan. Accompanying him was Oswy and his son, as well as Wulfrich, son of Leofwin, Edwy, brother of Edvi, Thirketl-Mirahed, and also a decent number of other Thanes. And these nobles were bringing with them many more unnamed Ferdmen, who always make up the bulk of these defensive armies. But the truth is, they were just trickling in. And this was just a tiny sample of the forces that should have been at hand for the defense of East Anglia. Many were not answering the call. And poor Ulfgill must have experienced a nasty case of deja vu because just like his battle against Swain Forkbeard in 1004, once again, the number of East Anglians who were answering his call were far less than he hoped and needed. Faced with a call to defend king and country, people were opting just to stay home. The accord between lord and subject had broken down to such an extent that now even common soldiers were violating their oaths. And even a respected general like Ulfgeld Snelling couldn't muster a full Ferd. But Ulfgeld still had a duty. East Anglia needed protection. And so, just outside of Thetford, at a place called Ringmera on Raytham Heath, Ulfgell Snelling took a position where he could watch over the town, and also where he could wait for more reinforcements that he so desperately needed. But the Vikings were experienced raiders. They weren't going to give their enemy a chance to gather their strength. And so, as soon as Ipswich was sacked, the Viking army launched into a forced march heading north, to the very site where they had heard the East Anglians were gathering to make a counter-attack. And so, it wasn't long before the Scandinavian horde came into full view of Ulfgell and his little army. But there was no backing down. Here, at Ring the future of East Anglia would be decided. The English army formed their lines and prepared for battle. Ulfgell shouted his instructions and reminded them of their duty and how all of East Anglia was relying on them to stop this menace right here. And I'm sure that Ulfgell would've liked to delay this battle. I mean, he still needed more troops to arrive, but there was just no way the Vikings were gonna allow that to happen. And so soon after their arrival, the Vikings advanced on Ulfgell and what few men he'd managed to gather. They were outnumbered, and they were almost certainly outmatched, as the Vikings who fought against them weren't farmers. They weren't even average raiders. These were professionals. They did this work all year round. On one side of the field, you had a cluster of English, many of whom had never seen a real battle. And on the other side was the Yoms Vikings. And for them, this was just another day at the office. And that gap in experience and training showed itself immediately when one of the English nobles, Thur Meerhead, broke and fled the field. And he was joined by large numbers of his compatriots. And upon seeing this, just like that, the East Anglian forces all broke and began running for their lives. All except for the Ferd of Cambridgeshire. They held fast, they refused to give any ground to the invading Danes. And they were slaughtered. Because these were the Yoms Vikings, not Cobra Kai. The Chronicle tells us that Athelstan, Oswy, Wulfrich, Edwy, as well as countless thanes and even more common folk were killed in that battle at Ringmera. And in the end, the Yoms Vikings stood triumphant. Even worse, in their flight, the English had lost the horses that had carried them to the battle, an oversight that the Vikings quickly capitalized upon. Now, they weren't a Viking army they were Viking cavalry. And so, it was May 5th of 1010, and the Viking spring break was only just beginning to heat up. With Ulfkel's army defeated, the nearby town of Thetford was left undefended. So, the Danes helped themselves to their possessions and then burned the town down for good measure before moving on. And thanks to their recently acquired horses, they were able to cover a lot of territory, They slaughtered their way through the fens, plundering and burning all throughout East Anglia. And for the English court, there was no longer any pretending that these Vikings weren't there. King Athelred would have to do something now. And luckily for him, the king had more than East Anglia and Cambridge that he could call upon. So Athelred mustered his army and, well, here's how the Chronicle puts it. Quote, when the king's army should have gone out to meet them as they went up, then they went home. And when they were in the east, then was the army detained in the west. And when they were in the south, then was the army in the north. End quote. You see, it's not that the English army was bad. It was actually really good. It was just good at avoiding battle. And after three months of this, the Yams Vikings had finally taken all they could from East Anglia. So, they decided to move on to the next open horizon. And luckily for them, it wasn't all that far off. Thanks to the fyrd of Cambridgeshire choosing to hold their ground and die valiantly in battle at Ringmera Pit, Cambridge was now largely undefended. And that was fantastic for the Alms Vikings. And once they were done plundering, they lit their fires and rode south to the Thames, where they met their ships, probably to offload some of their goods. And then the Viking cavalry rode westward to Oxfordshire. And this brought them deep into Mercian lands, territory that had a rich military past and had a furred that hadn't been depleted by two devastating losses in six years. This wasn't East Anglia, this was Mercia. Furthermore, this land was governed over by the king's chief counselor and new son-in-law, the powerful elderman, Edric Streona the Mercian forces were well positioned to be able to break this army before it could cause any more devastation in England. Especially considering that the Vikings were so far from their ships and from any support. But there is just one small problem with this plan. It relied upon the nobles of Mercia to muster their warbands and fight. And let's be honest, these days, that was unlikely to happen. Now, we're not told if Edric called upon the nobles and the Ferd who were subject to him. Rather, the Chronicle tells us that rather than mustering an army to defend the kingdom, the nobles abandoned their duties and, quote, each fled as best as he could, end quote. So as the Yams Vikings rode west, Oxford stood alone. The leaders, such as they were, refused the calls for aid that came from their neighboring shires. Each noble now only looked upon his own well being, even to his own detriment, because when he abandoned his neighbors, that meant that his neighbors wouldn't be there to support him. The scribes of the Chronicle put a fine point on the selfishness of the nobility, saying, quote, In the end, no shire would even help the next. End quote. England was no longer a kingdom. Today it would be called a failed state. And so, utterly abandoned, Oxford was ransacked. And then it lit up the night sky as it was burned to cinders while the Vikings continued their ride. Next, Buckinghamshire was sacked and burned. Then Bedford was ignited. Then Thamesford was torched. The air would have been thick with the scent of smoke, ash, and death. And the English nobility, through their short-sighted self-interest, were complicit in all of it. Nothing seemed to be able to stop this army. The truth is, they only had one real enemy. Logistics. They just had too much stuff. Their horses and carts were getting loaded down with all these treasures. And so the Vikings had to make a choice. Keep raiding or deal with the stuff. And so they returned to their longships and loaded them up with all their ill-gotten goods. Meanwhile, the Witan, consisting of the most powerful nobles in England, many of whom were likely already on hand due to the fact that they already demonstrated they'd rather be anywhere than defending their own shires, were summoned to meet with King Athelred and determined how best to defend the kingdom. But the trouble was that virtually no one was willing to fight. And even those who were willing to fight were outmatched, and if the king's army was any indication... They were, at the very least, incredibly incompetent. I mean, how hard would it have been to find these Yoms Vikings? Just follow the smell of smoke. But they wouldn't. Or they couldn't. And honestly, if you can't get them to come to the defense of their neighbors, who are right there, how on earth can you expect them to come to the defense of a shire that's all the way on the other side of the kingdom? So England remained undefended. And the Vikings, now newly refreshed after dropping off their sick loot, rode to Northampton. And shortly before the feast day of St. Andrew, they sacked the town and set it alight. Then, likely realizing they had nothing to fear of the English, and that even the English king was unable to challenge them, they rode into Athelred's home territory, into Wessex itself. And burning and looting as they went, they rode far and wide until about Christmas, at which point they returned to their ships and decided to wait out the bitter cold of winter. As the new year dawned in 1011, the Jams Vikings continued their campaign. And things were getting so bad now that the scribes of the Chronicle stopped giving us narrative accounts. They didn't even separate things into individual sentences. Instead, they just give us a list of all the towns that were sacked by the Jams Vikings. Quote, they had now overrun East Anglia, and Essex, and Middlesex, and Oxfordshire, and Cambridgeshire, and Hertfordshire, and Buckinghamshire, and Bedfordshire, and half of Huntingdonshire, and much of Northamptonshire, and to the south of the Thames, all Kent, and Sussex, and Hastings, and Surrey, and Berkshire, and Hampshire, and much of End quote. That's just a single sentence listing out all the places that were hit and burned by this invading army. In all, the Yoms Vikings ravaged 15 counties in 16 months. And with the exception of Ulfgell Snelling's fight at Ringmara Pit, the English didn't even put up a serious organized resistance. The nobility refused to work together, and each shire was out for themselves. And the scribes firmly placed the blame on those in charge of the various territories saying that the slaughter happened because the nobles failed to offer a Dengeld quickly enough when that was needed, and failed to fight when they should have fought. And to make matters worse, after the burning and plundering of the nobles' territory was complete, only then did they enter peace with the Jams Vikings, offering them tribute and peace. Which meant that as the Jams Vikings went elsewhere, quote, plundering and spoiling and slaying our miserable people, end quote, they did it without having to worry about any of the people left behind in that old shire. So the nobles weren't just failing to uphold their duties in the moment, and they didn't just fail to properly read the strategy necessary to counter the Jomsvikings. No, it wasn't just that. Instead, once the damage was already done, they struck their own private peace and thus denied their neighbors any chance of support, making England even more vulnerable to Thorkel, Hemming, and their Jomsvikings. So the burning and the looting continued unabated. And in September of 1011, the Vikings were back in Kent because there was still a major city that hadn't been looted yet, Canterbury. And I know what you're thinking. They'd already paid a Dengeld of 3,000 pounds to this army in exchange for peace. So this should be done for them, right? Well, that was then, and this was now. And Canterbury was an opportunity that the Jomsvikings couldn't pass up. Because it wasn't just wealthy, it was also dangerously exposed. You see, Thorkell and Hemming knew something that the people of Canterbury didn't. They knew they had an inside man. Abbot Elfmar was sympathetic to the Jomsvikings' cause. Or at least he thought he could profit from being sympathetic to them. And so we're told that he delivered the city to the Jomsvikings. And we're not told how he did that, but I presume it involved opening the gates and weakening the defenses in some manner, because we're told that the Vikings quote, entered therein through treachery, end quote. And then, once inside, they captured Elfward, who was King Athelred's steward, along with Abbess Leofruna, Bishop Godwin, and even Archbishop Alphea of Canterbury himself. And as for Abbot Elfmar, well, they let him go. And I kind of feel for Archbishop Alfea here, because the only reason why Abbot Elfmar was even alive was because the Archbishop had saved him sometime earlier. The dude literally owed the Archbishop his life, and yet here he was, selling out him and the entire city. But it was done now, and with Canterbury in their possession, the Yoms Vikings seized all the men and women of the city. And the scribes tell us that it's impossible to say how many were taking, but the suffering must have been widespread. And then they set up camp there. You see, Canterbury was defensible, and it was wealthy, and it was conveniently located. So why wouldn't you? And from this position of strength, they began negotiations with King Athelred and his chief counselor, Edric Strayona. Though my guess is that as Archbishop Elfhea was the same man who'd brokered peace with Olaf Tryggvason 16 years earlier, I'm pretty sure he was involved in the negotiations. But apparently coming to terms wasn't all that easy because weeks turned into months. And while they'd taken the city in September of 1011, it wasn't until April of 1012 that the payment was ready. And in a stunning show of confidence, it appears that the Yams Vikings just left Canterbury. I mean, after looting it, of course. And they boarded their ships and sailed to Greenwich to receive their Dane Guild. Now, for those of you who aren't familiar with the geography of the UK, Greenwich is just outside of the city of London. So Heming, Thorkell, and the Yams Vikings were just hanging out with their weapons and their armor and their longships right in the beating heart of the English economy and demanding that their money be delivered to them. They were also apparently not all that concerned about a military response from the English. Which, it turned out, was probably rather smart, because rather than putting up a fight, the English nobles just set about gathering the demand of payment as quickly as they could. In all, Thorkell, Hemming, and the Jomsvikings had demanded 48,000 pounds of gold and silver in exchange for a promise of peace. 48,000 pounds! That's a staggering payment. But that wasn't all. Pressing their advantage, Hemming and his followers clearly thought that there was still a little more money that they could squeeze out of these Englishmen. So they also demanded that a separate payment be made in exchange for the return of the archbishop. We're not told how much they demanded, but if Archbishop Alphea wanted to be freed, he would have to pay the ransom. And Archbishop Alfea refused. He wouldn't pay them a single penny for his freedom. Furthermore, he insisted that no one else pay for his freedom either. Apparently, after more than six months in captivity and being forced to watch as his Episcopal See was ravaged by these pirates, Alfea had reached his limit. As far as he was concerned, these Joms Vikings wouldn't get one more cent out of him. And my guess is that Alfheim made his views on the matter quite clear, probably in rather unflattering language, and possibly in words the Danes could understand, given that he had previous experience in negotiating with them. Because, as the chronicle tells us, the Joms Vikings responded by going ape. Sh- Now, it probably didn't help that they'd been day drinking the wine that they looted. But regardless, upon hearing Alfhea's refusal, they grabbed the Archbishop, dragged him to their meeting spot at Greenwich, and began to pelt him with bones and ox heads, which might seem like a strange thing to throw at him. I mean, where would you get multiple ox heads? Did the Vikings just travel with him, you know, in case they needed to drunkenly attack a priest? Well, no. Actually, the Yoms Vikings had been in Greenwich for quite some time, as they'd been waiting for their Dane guild. So in all likelihood, those bones and ox heads were the leftovers from the various feasts that the Yoms Vikings had been eating while they'd been waiting for this payment. And all of them, almost certainly, had been provided by the people of London and the surrounding areas, which was a special level of salt in the wound. And so as this went on, something about it just wasn't sitting right with Thorkell the Tall one of the two leaders of the Vikings. Perhaps it was the rank cruelty of how they were killing an elderly bishop. Perhaps it was the stench that doubtlessly filled the air. We're not told, but Thorkell interceded on the archbishop's behalf and offered all of his loot in exchange for Alfea's freedom. But Archbishop Alphea had been quite clear. He didn't want anyone to pay for his freedom, including Thorkell. And so, the slow, brutal execution resumed. Eventually, finally, one of the Yom's Vikings came forward and hit the archbishop on the head with the back of his axe, killing him. Alf was about 60 years old when he died. And as for who delivered the killing blow? Well, Florence of Worcester, who was writing about a century later, Tells us that it was a Dane that the Archbishop had converted during his time in captivity, and that as an act of mercy, knowing that he couldn't free the old priest, he could at least ease his passing. And Florence tells us that this man's name was Thrum, which sounds a lot like Thorkel, and it's led some scholars to suspect that, after failing to gain Althea's freedom, Thorkel did his best to give him a quick death. On the following morning, the Archbishop's body was brought to London, where it was buried at St. Paul's Minster. The Archbishop of Canterbury was the center of Christendom on the island, and he had just been murdered, right outside one of the largest and busiest port towns in England. This was a tremendous blow to the kingdom. Nothing like it had ever happened before. Never had an Archbishop of Canterbury died a violent death. And now, One had been murdered by a group of pagan pirates in full view of the Christian flock over which Alphaea was supposed to tend. And in response to this open assault upon the most sacred man of the kingdom, the English nobility continued taxing their subjects and gathering the Danegeld. And soon thereafter, a payment of 48,000 pounds of gold and silver was handed over in exchange for a promise of peace. But this whole situation still wasn't sitting all that well with Thorkell the Tall. They didn't need to kill the old man. Certainly not like that. And presumably, he got up one morning, looked at himself in the polished iron of his sword, and said, Wait, am I the bad guy? Because after the Dane was handed over to the Jamsvikings, Thorkell defected and joined the English. And 45 ships came with him they'd had enough of raiding. Now they would serve this English king. And so in April of 1012, King Athelred, who'd spent the last year or two being unable to even muster a functional war band, suddenly had an army of elite Vikings at his command. More than that, he had a peace treaty with the remainder of the Vikings, and he had a peace treaty with the mightiest Scandinavian king alive, King Swain Forkbeard perhaps their troubles were finally over. Well, there was just one small problem with that. Thorkel the Tall wasn't an independent actor. He was the subject of King Swain Forkbeard. So that meant that when thorkel defected, along with 45 ships, he didn't just bolster King Athelred's military. He also deprived King Swain of a great deal of military power, not to mention income from his raiding, that he had a right to, based on how their society was structured. This was virtually theft. So that wasn't gonna sit well with King Swain. And it turned out that as news was filtering in about how weak and undefended England had become, Swain's ears had already been perking up. I mean, this was a man who was a Viking down to his bones. And England was letting everyone know it was ripe for plunder. Not only that, but Swain's son was now in his early 20s, and he needed some experience if he was going to take the throne after Swain was gone. And England was ideal for this task. All Forkbeard needed was a cause for war. And by accepting the service of Thorkell and his 45 ships of Jomsvikings, Athelred had just given him one. So Forkbeard called for his son, Canute, and they made their preparations for war. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at the British History Podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.